Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So I'm here with uh, Paul. This is Jason Rodenbeck, and I'm here with Paul Axton, and we're kind of doing double duty. We're recording um, an introduction for an upcoming class, uh, and as well as uh, going to use this um, to share with folks who aren't in the class in the form of a podcast. For those of you that listen to the podcast that may not know, Posher's Bible Institute is our attempt to share what uh, we're doing at Posher's in a way that people can come and take classes and and learn more about our peaceful understanding of what Christianity is about. The class that we're, we're preparing is uh, THE 315 Imaginative Apologetics. Now, um, apologetics is a field that uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s was just gaining in a lot of folks are interested in it. And it might have something to do with the idea of the culture wars are revving up and we want to learn how to argue with our, or how to, how to beat our opponents. But the apologetics became a, a far more uh, a popular topic. What Paul and I have discovered as we've, as we've talked more, and I think Paul is way, has spent a lot of time uh, dealing with this, is that this, our understanding of what the gospel is changes what we think we're doing when we have conversations uh, when we're talking about the gospel. I kind of feel like I semi have a handle on what we're talking about when we're talking about imaginative apologetics, but I, and I'm going to let Paul talk at some point, but I'm going to let Paul take over here in a second and sort of really get into the nitty gritty here. But I do want to tell a story. At Plowshares for several years now, we've been using a program on, uh, it's a a browser-based program called Asana, for task management and um, just to assign one another certain tasks or create tasks and do our part of it and then pass it on to the next person. At my last institution, we were talking about um, different tools we could use to, to do uh, project management. And I said, let me show you what I'm doing with this uh, project I'm working on with my friend Paul. And I showed him Asana. Uh, and uh, consequently, they saw the folks I was working with saw one of the tasks said something about imaginative apologetics. These were not folks that uh, had a similar background to me. What we're doing in imaginative apologetics is really deconstructing classical apologetics and and talking about a new way of looking at it. And I remember uh, them asking me, so what does that even mean? And I just, my face did the equivalent of the blue screen of death on a computer. I just went, uh, I had to look really impressive. It, it would take a long time. <laughs> oh, too complicated. Yeah, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. I mean, I could, but, you know, in, in half an hour or so, I, I can maybe start getting at it. But I couldn't imagine they were still going to be in this. So, um, Paul, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about what you are thinking when, because this really, I feel like, is a term you either coined or introduced me to or both. Uh, let her rip. Go for it. Yeah, I didn't coin it. Uh, in fact, I think it was C.S. Lewis that, you know, when he talked about his own conversion, he said that it was a baptism of his imagination. And, and I think that it's really in uh, that understanding. Of, it's unfolded in, I think, narrative theology, 
in the, the appreciation of story. Uh, but what Lewis meant by it is, well, we can't just take God and add him to a world that we already have or a worldview that we already have, but rather we're going to understand everything differently. We're going to... So a lot of things feed into this, and you could say it in many different ways, that it is a, a reintegration through maybe narrative or story or, you know, N.T. Wright, the book that we're going to use in the class, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> we'll, know, we'll know by the time we're preparing week three or four. I was actually waiting for your, your uh, I, I was wondering uh, your response, but we can come back to that. Um, he uses the notion of history, which is probably uh, closer to a biblical picture. But of course, what we're getting in all of those is the understanding of a changed up worldview. And so what has tended to happen in a classical apologetics uh, in the modern period, and I would claim even prior to the modern period. As a result of the, the scholasticism. Yeah, the, the scholastic understanding. Yeah. And, of course, once you get into this, the, you, you're going to tread on toes, and so you almost just need it bluntly at first and then go back and uh, explain uh, what you don't mean. And the way that Bart put it is, well, the Antilogiantus is the Antichrist. That gets at the problem, though it, you know, the, everybody's been arguing since about, okay, did he really? But whatever you believe about whether the degree to which he was right or wrong, and of course I think he was partially mistaken in assigning uh, the understanding that, in other words, what he was saying is that in Nazi Germany, that due to the privileging of reason and rationality, that reason or rationality or human culture or human persons have displaced God, so that natural theology gave rise to a kind of idolatrous understanding, uh, that you're going to get critiques. This is really what Martin Heidegger, you know, he's actually following He's using the word that Kant coined of ontotheology. That is, that ontology, the ontology of being or the philosophy surrounding, you know, the idea that we can go from the being of the world to the being of God, that in some way what tended to happen, we just incorporate God into our capacity for reason and knowing. Uh, we, re at the same, you know, two things can happen. This can go in two directions. You just reduce God to an object in the world, or you, at the same time, you're in fact giving a kind of or divine power to human thought that you get in Hegel, who's going to say, the rational is the real, and the real is the rational, so that when you think really good stuff, you're thinking like you know, you're, you're, you're deified. Where it lands is obvious, that in some way there is a reduction of God, a deification of human reason, and that can display itself in either, you know, the reaction to that has been a kind of positive theology. This is, you know, the idea, this is what 
in part, Martin Luther is responding to in his depiction of the theologians of glory. Well, the theologians of glory, he's really thinking of those who use human reason or the world or things like the cosmological argument to come to God rather than coming to God on the basis of the cross. But then you get a whole response of, that also says, well, you can't do that. And then you get a kind of apophatic theology that, oh, it's just we can't say anything about God. There will be variations on that, or up to and including, I think, forms of atheism, but in Jean-Luc Marion, you know, the, the God beyond being. And so I'm, I'm describing the problem mainly because what we don't want to do or what we want to negotiate in the class is to recognize, yeah, there's this condition that has come about, partly due to what is called apologetics or natural theology or natural philosophy that has been highly destructive. And yet there is a legitimate place, you know, the word apology, the etymology of the word goes back to a trial, if you go back to the trial of Socrates, one of the famous apologies, the trial of Jesus is an apology, they're a kind of defense, and mm-hmm. you know, Paul before Agrippa. It's a perfectly good word, and it's a perfectly good concept. But, of course, part of the problem in traditional apologetics is that it's almost separated out from theology such that it becomes a kind of reason that imagines that you can begin with what we call foundationalism, that you're going to use the foundation of reason. Right. Here's what we know. Yeah, yeah. Here's the stuff we know. Um, now let's figure out how God fits with that or right. how it proves God. Or so how you shape can... God according to what you know, and in the process you... Uh, le- legitimate your way of knowing and what you know because it gets you God. Yeah. Rather than beginning in a place of faith, and this is, I think, what Bart meant, you know, that they're going to write the Barman Declaration. A good deal of it is just over and against notions of natural theology or, or human reason. And this is going to be his big break with Bruner. He's going to defend. Uh, a form of natural theology. You know, you don't need to get into all the details of that or, or even say to what degree one is right and one is wrong. But what you need, to, I think the big picture thing is, hey, things went bad. Uh, something went wrong. And bad theology, kind of the raising up of human reason, uh, is part of it. And so everybody has to agree on that. This is maybe an opportune time in the history of our own country, in which we can say, you know, things ain't right. The character we have in the White House, who is just a kind of empty placeholder, but the shocking thing then is the the Christians that support him are not so unlike in their theological orientation and understanding. Those Christians who look to Adolf Hitler as a kind of messianic figure. And so I think it's true that the fascination with a particular theological form 
that has in part at least developed due to apologetics or natural theology, not necessarily lay all the blame there, but a good portion of it, to recognize that's the problem, not to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, you know, one of the ways that you, you might do this is that we have many people saying with Martin Heidegger, you know, everybody wants to get rid of metaphysics. Everybody wants to say, oh, we just, we just throw that out. Yeah, there's a huge problem in the fascination with imagining we can get to the being of God through the being of the world, you know, that takes place. But even there, I think that we need, we're going to have to nuance that together. And so the name, you know, imaginative apologetics, it is, I'm taking Lewis's notion of baptizing the imagination, not playing with that in any simplistic fashion. Uh, by any means, or to just say, oh, this answers all of our questions. Because I think part of understanding what we need answered is to recognize, okay, here are the problems, here are the failures of human thought, and what we need in an, in an alternative, in what we're calling an imaginative apologetics, is a, a full-bodied answer to this dilemma. Yeah, it's interesting that you that C.S. Lewis is where we're going to get to get that language because I have in recent years found that I'm critical of his his apologetic or, or his uh, theodicy on the problem of pain, and I felt there's a there's a wonderful movie or there's been more there's been a couple of uh, there was a movie and a remake of the movie that just left me Shadowlands which is a, a, a story of how of his, his own thinking, uh, how his own thinking uh, on the problem of pain. And this might be a good sort of example of, of the, the shift in thinking that we're talking about. So classical apologetic arguments are designed to start with one, some, some foundational thing we can all agree on and then argue towards the existence of God as a defense against criticisms. And so, yeah, if you're going to get rid of metaphysics, then sure, we'll, how do, you know, arguing for the existence of God, um, we can't do that. And so folks kind of said, yeah, we'll, we'll acknowledge that, that that's really hard. So um, let's start with what we know. And I mean, this goes back to Descartes doing the same thing, Anselm of Canterbury's uh, ontological argument. This, we're, we're talking about things that are thousands of years old. But Lewis uh, is trying to create a theodicy or an, an answer to the question, if there is a God and if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why do bad things happen? And so he writes uh, The Problem of Pain, and it's exceptionally well written. Of course, everything Lewis said was, I mean, he's, Alan and I were talking about N.T. Wright the other day, and he was saying, you know, you can, I, we were both saying, you know, he, you can hear N.T. Wright's voice when he writes. So, and Lewis had a similar kind of tone, like, you know, you're reading Lewis when you're reading him and just charming. And it had, uh, it was well said and it was very neat and tidy. His theodicy was what you might call soul making theodicy that God uses pain with which to get your attention and so in one of the Shadowlands movie with uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins, uh, it begins with 
him lecturing to a bunch of uh, elderly women <laughs> for some luncheon. And he says, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's one of the big quotes, you know. And, it's, uh, and so this is how he argues that it's, it's saying, well, pain is a thing God uses. And so therefore, that's how the existence of God, an all-powerful good God, is not inconsistent with the existence of pain in the world. The difficulty with that is that when Lewis gets to, uh, when his wife dies of cancer and dies painfully and slowly, you see Lewis, his, his, all of his certainty about this because it crumbles the foundationalism. It crumbles the, what the initial faith is in is in my ability to reason. And so you, it completely crumbles that down. This is the, the time when he writes um, A Grief Observed. And this is when he, in one point, I mean, it's brutal. He says, I think God is the great vivisectionist. And viv- if, if you're not familiar with the term, vivisection is someone who does cruel, this is Mengele, somebody who does cruel experiments for fun, like a kid with a, with a magnifying glass burning ants in the ground. Lewis is saying, it, it, I mean, he's going from thinking God's using this to tell me something to God's a cruel bully. And, I mean, it's, it's brutal. And finally, I think it, you see that there's a growth and a procession there. And I, for my part, what I feel like I see there that you're saying, and if I'm way off, I hope you're going to correct me, but the, the book of the Bible that spends the most time talking about the problem of evil, overtly, you know, expressly talking about it, is Job. I, I like to think that the whole Bible is really dealing with the problem of evil. But Job is the one who, who really... They're really chewing on it, and and Job, you're set up so that there is no lesson Job needs. He's already perfectly righteous, and all this terrible stuff happens to him. There's this sort of absurd story about God telling the devil to go ahead and have at him, and so you're presented with this whole story, and at the end of the story, after all of the theologizing and philosophizing of these these four guys, these three guys plus another guy that comes in later. And Job says, no, that doesn't make sense. No, none of your answers work. His conclusion is, I realize I don't have an answer to this. After God comes and questions him, the conclusion is there isn't an answer to this. I'm just going to have to have faith. (laughs) It just seems that whoever wrote that book is not dealing with the same foundationalism, trying to prove, or maybe they're, they're dealing with it, but they're saying, there is no quick, easy answer for this. There is no answer that makes this match up. The, the real problem is where this question comes from in the beginning. I think we need to appreciate the friends of Job. Uh, <laughs> Richard Swamburn actually gives us the similar arguments. In other words, I, I think we're, we're still with the friends of Job. He gives us the percentages, yeah. the mathematical percentages of the odds of the resurrection being true. The friends of Job give us a clear picture of the law of the universe. And law, I think, is key here because it's actually going to reverberate clear into the modern period. We know, Job, they say to him, that here's the way things work. That God is righteous, and his righteousness then is working itself out in the world. And therefore, 
given that perspective, we know, Job, that you're a sinner because you're being punished mm -hmm. for your sin. Everybody can see that, Job. We love you. You're, you're our buddy, you know, but that just has to be the way it is. So they've got a perfect cause and effect world. And I think this is key here because what we're really describing, you know, this is Heidegger, what he's going to say about the forgetting of being, that everything is in fact kind of reduced to a kind of machine. And the friends of Job have a machine-like world in which there really is no mystery. Uh, we know why you're suffering. And so when Job says, no, I, I, I have nothing to deserve this, then they accuse him of blasphemy mm -hmm. because they're saying that, oh, are you saying that God is an evildoer? Or that, in other words, it just doesn't compute. I think there are several things to appreciate the story of Job. In other words, I would put many people, I, I think that David Bentley Hart, though I have great appreciation for him and, and for many parts of his theology, as much as he gives us, you know, and he'll slip back and forth, even in his book on universalism, which I, it, it's not, I have, there are parts of that that I very much appreciate, or even in his book on the doors of the sea. He'll do this, he'll slide between these two things of a kind of absolute philosophical argument in which there is no uncertainty. We can be absolutely certain of you know, universal salvation, we can be absolutely certain on the basis of who God is. And of course, what he means by that is not who God is in Christ. And the friends of, it's almost a friends of Job sort of argument, even in a Christian world. Uh, but understand, Dave Bentley Hart is the best of these, that most people, in other words, that's what's going to happen again and again, uh, certainly with somebody that, and, and he's claiming not to do a theodicy, and I think he's right that he's, you know, but then he saves God. He, he gives us a, a picture in which, well, we can uh, uh, completely exclude God from this problem. But I don't think the book of Job does that, and no. I don't think the New Testament does that. In no. fact, we find God in the midst of the problem. Yes. And so we're not going to defeat evil through some fine argument, through a conception of God, through a theory of who God is or what the world is. Yeah. But the, the real world defeat that we have of evil is historical. That is, it's in Christ, that Christ is overcoming and defeating evil on the cross. I don't think that we can know more than that. I don't, in other words, the temptation is always to think ourselves out of history to give ourselves the divine perspective, as if we can say, well, this is who God is, and this is his relationship uh, to evil. No, I think that what we have in Christ is, uh, and in the midst of a finite, historical, unfolding defeat of evil, that this is the perspective of our understanding. To think our way, you know, that's always the, the picture here, that we'll climb the stairs of I'm, this is my critique of Anselm, that he's going to actually use the language or differentiation to come to the absolute difference of God, but this is an incomparable difference, which, of course, 
it's not a difference if it's incomparable. It's not a difference that we can conceive of. And that's precisely what he says of God. That is, he's going to argue his way to God using difference, but then when we come to God, it's so incomparable, it's so beyond us, that it's darkness. And that's literally what he says. He'll say that both in his cosmological argument and his ontological argument. That is, he's saying in the argument, God, I can see you now, but what have I seen? Nothing but darkness. Hmm. Anselm is a beautiful picture of the method, identity, you know, you're going to use difference, differentiation. You're going to think the absolute difference, which reduces to a complete sameness. And he'll talk about the world as if it's nothing. The world, both the cosmological and the ontological argument, is made into nothing. Or in the name of God, in the ontological argument, he gives God a new, game, new name something than which nothing greater can be, can be thought. thought. Yeah, can be thought. And, of course, that's all you have. That's the name of God. Say the name. You know, go into your room, monks at Beck. Close the door of your mind. Close the door of your room and think the greatest thought that can be thought. And if you do, you'll get a buzz. But look at the sentence a minute. What is the meaning of something in the sentence? Well, we don't know because the only thing we can think is that sentence. Yeah. In other words, that's all we got. The and only not, thing we can think is it's, it's, it's the nothing. It's, not a, it's certainly not a personal God and not the person of God that's, that we find in Scripture. And I, I think that, because, and I think we're going to end up hitting on in the course things like the ontological argument and, and probably, I'm sure, different versions of it. Theodicies, the cosmological argument, anthropocentrism, and some, and there's different forms of these, right? You, there's Kalam cosmological, and then there's Bruce Reichenbach. His, I, I remember uh, somebody at Central told me I should read that one um, years ago. But there's all these different versions of these arguments. But essentially, what you said is you're, you're keeping God. In the way Hart says, you're keeping, you're saving God, kind of like the ridiculous thing we heard a couple of weeks ago from Trump saying, we've got to protect God from these attacks. <laughs> I, I, and I, so listen, I mean, it's, it's farcical, but I went to Bible college because I wanted to learn how to prove God's existence beyond a shadow of a doubt. Listen, God is not trying to prove his, his existence beyond a shadow of a doubt. Anybody. If, if any of us could have done that, somebody would have done that by now. We're not trying to defend an, unpro, uh, an absent God or a, a weak God from people that are attacking him or from people who don't believe. His appearance or his, his existence, the evidences of his existence are how he has revealed himself, right? We end up with a, with a God that's not God anymore. We end up with, and, and what I think that the, the, this course, what we're trying to do in this course is say, once you, once you understand the person of Jesus as the revelation of God, then you start to understand that this is not a God that you can argue is over and above. You're right. In, in the book of Job, God is in the void. Like he's, 
or that, that's, uh, I think, Ezekiel. Um, but God is in the middle of all of this, right? He's, he doesn't, he's not removed, um, and he's not implicated in doing evil, but he's there in the middle of all of it. He's always active and always present. I think it's the same picture you get with the cosmic nature of this imagery of the temple is God is always in our midst. He's always present. Um, heaven, this is N.T. Wright, is heaven is here all around us. It's not up there somewhere. It's here. It's all around us. It's a different realm, but the two things are connected. They're, earth and heaven are connected. So that once you see Jesus on the cross and defeating evil, that that changes our imagination so much. It's not that there's not a time to argue or to make a case, but the idea that we can start outside of what Jesus, outside of God and argue to God, it becomes nonsense. It's like in Genesis, it doesn't say, and I, when you started, I don't know if it was you, Maybe it was you pointed out to me years ago. Um, Jack Cottrell's book on biblical theology, it was a, a prime example. The goal is to only talk about God biblically. You know, we're going to start and we're going to talk about God the way the Bible talks about God. And we're going to figure out everything we have to say about God and about who we are in relationship to God strictly only through the Bible. Chapter one, the cosmological argument. <laughs> yeah, we argue, well, we know God exists because somebody had to create all this. So there you yeah. go. That was, that was how we started. Then, but Genesis one doesn't say, all right, look, so all this stuff is here. So somebody had to create it. No, it just says in the beginning, God, in the beginning. I forgot that. Yeah. I used to, his was a beautiful illustration of really bad theology. Yeah. Because he uses the natural arguments to get his book up and running. And then we turn to God only after we've proven him. And, of course, what has been put in place are the proofs that will become the basis for which we're going to understand who God is. It's nearly the perfect example of the worst theology. Mm -hmm. Because then all through the book, we're going to get this bizarre, you know, just terrible theology that God actually turns out to be quite, you know, that he punishes Jesus, torturing him, and, you know, the, the whole thing unfolds, I think, from that. And so that's a prime example of how natural theology, if we imagine that is our kind of prolegomena, you know, this is Bart's big thing. He said, I'm, I'm not going to do a prolegomena. Of course, he spends several thousand pages not doing a prolegomena. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. uh, so, uh, that, but, but the idea is... <laughs> as long as you uh, don't call it that, then it's not... Yeah. <laughs> he would, but he's arguing. You know, there's that, that's the argument. No, we need to begin, and not with arguments about God, in other words, that's the case I think he's making, rightly so. And uh, so we don't need a, a prolegomena. We need Christ at the beginning. We need, because it's through Christ that we know who God is. Yeah. And not on the base. Now, I always want to qualify this. I think we need to say all of this 
This is not in any way, you know, I think uh, in a blog or two back, I made the case that part of what we may be about, though, in a kind of an imminent argument to show the inadequacy of that. And so it may be that you're with somebody who can only think in those terms. Okay, it's not that you can't have a discussion with that person, but you're going to have a kind of Socratic discussion in which, or a Deridian discussion, Mm -hmm. in which you, okay, let's use your terms of of discussion, but let's show the inadequacy of that. In other words, there's a dystopian form of understanding inherent to what I would call modernity, whether it's a believing modernity or an unbelieving modernity. Unfortunately, I think it's all of this kind of imminent frame. This is Taylor that gives us the big book on the rise of secularism. His point is, well, everybody's secular. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, because everybody's working in this imminent frame of reference. And I think partly why is because this form of thought, this form of reason has taken stage in theology as if that's our foundation. And so when we say that Christ is foundation, that's what we're displacing. We're, we're actually saying something serious there, that it's a displacement of a different kind of mode of thought and theology. Yeah. A question that I, I, I kind of had on my mind as we approached the conversation, how close is this concept to the concept of Reformed epistemology, and that that is the idea that we we may not understand until we first believe. That modernity is always kind of saying, well, we can we can argue to this based on these foundational principles. We can argue to these other things. You base things on reason. And I'm not a Reformed theologian. In fact, m- most things about Reformed theology I, I find rather abhorrent. But this idea that our understanding may first be or predicated or dependent on our belief has made a lot of sense to me in, in the last few decades. Yeah, a kind of presuppositionalism. I would say that there's a lot of uh, positive, there's many positive things to say there, other than what has been done with presuppositionalism often is that it does, in fact, go, bo- go bad. You know, this is actually what Anselm is claiming to be doing is a kind of form of presuppositionalism, and it is what many of the worst of the mo- in the modern period claim to be doing. With Anselm, he unfortunately is setting aside revelation and imagining that we can begin simply with human words or human language. In other words, I think that you almost the word faith may mean very different things to people. Mm -hmm. That faith itself becomes a kind of isolated entity that we imagine, oh, faith is something uh, in which it doesn't necessarily entail a philosophy of language. Well, I'd say, no, no, actually it does. That that this faith, in other words, is a full-bodied faith, is going to inform our understanding of the way that everything works. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying, yeah, you know, there is a kind of, I, I think we do need to be able to, uh, and this is part of the imaginative part of the apologetics. This is part of, uh, I think it is a, 
an understanding that you get in somebody like Bernard Lonergan. In other words, what will unfortunately happen in any understanding that cuts itself off from either a full-bodied faith or a you know uh, that sort of reason is that the questioning and the curiosity are killed. The the questioning ceases. This is the problem I'm afraid with philosophical answers that presume. In other words, when we say presuppositionalism, we may imagine, oh, okay, well, here, here's my picture of God, and I'm going to fit everything into this reality. It has to be a more dynamic process than that. And so at, at one level, I'd say, yeah, presuppositionalism or the idea that, that there is some things, to the, the positive things to be said there. But I think we also have to recognize that there's nothing that exists outside of this faith, so that uh, where the worst forms of natural argument, you know, and this is, this is part of the discussion with Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas. I think when Karl Barth says that the Analogia Entis is the Antichrist, if he meant by that the five ways, talking about Aquinas's arguments in which he lays out those arguments, and I don't know that he did, he probably did, uh, then he's misunderstood. Well, no, actually Aquinas positing these five ways as part of faith. We're not just killing the arguments, and, and I think we need to say that. But there is space for these arguments given faith. But that's a very finely balanced thing because I think Bart is, even in his mistakenness, is partly correct in that Aquinas's arguments misunderstood as they come to be in neo scholastic understanding, you know, in uh, the school book, you know, Catholic understanding that it ends up looking something like a univocity of being, that you can get to the big B of God through the little B of the world. Having said all that, I think there, yes, there are some good things to be, to be said about a, a, a precept. The reason, the reason that, that some, some of my ideas are just reflection on lived experience, and one of the reasons that, that I've leaned that way myself has been for a for a long time, I was really obsessed. I came from an abusive home. Came from uh, uh, had a lot of I mean, just like everybody. There's just always pain. Pain is just always there. And so the problem of pain was one of the first C.S. Lewis books I read after I had grown out of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, it was one of the things I was like, help me understand this. Wrestled with that. Fought with that. How could a good God be all-powerful and all-good and still allow all this pain and suffering? I mean, this is a huge, the, this is a huge thing that really, it bothers people, and especially when you're watching your child die or something like that. I mean, it, it and by the way, um, the philosophical arguments are never what you want to trot out when somebody's watching their child die. It's just the worst possible time to do that. That was just always the, the big thing that, I, that was always foremost for me. What ended up happening is when I re-understood or re-believed what Jesus was doing on the cross, when the cross was no longer about God punishing evil in order to be able to forgive us, and God was instead experiencing the evil that we are doing, 
And now you don't see God any longer as this person up here who could be pulling all the strings and making things right, but why doesn't he? Now you see God as here with us, also suffering with us. And the question melted away. I feel like when I hear imaginative apologetics, that's the picture that ends up in my mind. How my questions about that changed. And now, yes, there is suffering. And I, I still, it doesn't make me go, oh, I feel so much better about all the suffering now. But at, at the same time, the question of why, what's its relationship to God, my mind has changed on that. And it's changed the way I, I look at it. And, and I don't know if that's, the, if that's what you mean when you say imaginative apologetics or not. I, I like the discussion about C.S. Lewis because I think yeah, the inadequacies are there. And he had a, a poor, I think in many instances, a poor concept, uh, especially when he would turn to just discussing Christianity proper, you know, in, in his mere Christianity. Or the, the, there's so much good there, but, you know, in a sense— the, the term applies best in his stories, in his children's stories. That you, and I, I don't know if you read my last blog, but I mentioned you and the, the uh, uh, picture of Wendell Berry. I didn't, wasn't familiar with Wendell Berry until you introduced me. And so here's someone who has, he lives in a, in a world that many people, they just don't conceive of the world in the way that a Wendell Berry or C.S. Lewis, you know, in his picture of Narnia and the, the various characters. And so he's an artist in, the, in that sense. He's creative. And there is an impetus to creativity mm. in his conception of things. I think that's partly what we mean. You know, I think that's what Christians are to be about in that we as witnesses, and this is, I'm thinking, you know, this is Horowitz's language, but uh, the idea, you know, we don't own this thing. It's not ours. We witness to it. The way that it's pictured in the Old Testament that is taken up in the New Testament is that we're priests. What does it mean you're a priest? Well, in some way, in the artistry and creativity of what it means to be in the image of God, Imago Dei, that that creativity then uh, in itself, then, is a kind of argument for. It is a presentation. And I think that the, in the artistry, for me, one of the great novels of all time had huge impact on me, was The Brothers Karamazov. That, be, be, not because... Never, never heard of that one before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you say that's one of the greatest ever. It might, it might be. It was okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.